0: Get your quote today at progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust progressive progressive casualty insurance company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. It's time to talk Mariners baseball. With spring training just around the corner, we are geared up for baseball. This is at the wall and it is gone into the bullpen for a two run homer. Some serious hang time from Nelson Cruz. It's the hot stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Sports app. Now oh, the hot stove to end all hot
1: stoves. This is going to be a fun one tonight. Aaron Goldsworth alongside Gary Hill and Mariners Hall of Famer, the handsomest man in the room, Dan the Man Wilson. Wow. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing very well, Aaron, especially after that intro. Well, it's impressive. Of course, Curtis Rogers running things for us tonight, as always. And, uh, Dan, this is a this is a very nice treat to have you on one of these shows for the whole two hours in studio. Normally, at best, your agent lets you do just a second oh, on the phone. How long is it? It's not even 30 seconds, and you're all <laughs> over me. Rough. But seriously, man, this is great. Thanks for coming by tonight.
2: I appreciate it. No, I'm looking forward to it and uh, looking forward to working
1: with both you guys uh, throughout the season. So it's going to be great. Yeah, you bring that up, and that's a, a nice segue. You're your role will be the same when it comes to on the field for the Mariners, it sounds like. You are still a, a kind of a special instructor.
2: Yeah, I'll be with uh, working some in the player development department and, and uh, mostly at Tacoma and uh, working with catchers and, and you know doing other kinds of things uh, in the minor leagues and looking forward to that, uh, but also doing s- some broadcasting, some radio, some TV, and, and I get to hang out with you guys, which, to be quite honest, there's nothing better than that. And it's more than usual,
1: right? In terms of your number of games this year? Uh
2: yeah, it's been definitely more than than it's been in the past, so I'm looking forward to that. And
1: and uh, the, the
2: view is, is very nice from up in the booth. So serious question.
1: Do you when when you are doing the telecast, do you put makeup on,
3: Dan? Wow.
1: I of course not. Okay, wow. Okay. I mean Blow does, I do, Simsy does. Wow. But you're you're above all that.
2: Oh well, no! no see, there you go.
1: You've, you've
4: cornered me already. This is
1: perfect. Well, this is off to a nice start. Hey, you know we've got a great show lined up. We're going to talk to a number of different people. Uh, in the first hour, we've got Chris Prieto lined up uh, on the phone for a couple of segments. Mariners' new first base coach, and uh, he has a, a really wonderful career story, which we're eager to talk to Chris about. You remember his name from a couple of years ago? First on staff with uh, the McClendon era. He was the Mariners' really the first a video replay guy for the Mariners, so Chris Prieto will join us. Evan Grant, fine beat writer, one of our favorites for the Dallas Morning News who covers the Rangers, will join us in the first hour as well. And Ron Fairley comes up in hour number two, a couple of segments with Red, which we're looking forward to. Uh, but, guys, in, in this opening segment, one thing that I think we're all eager to talk about a little bit, which has been in the news for the Mariners, is the rotation, the starting pitching for the Mariners. And, you know, Gary, you and I were talking about this, about how with all the talk of the rotation – The one guy that nobody's talking about is the king, right? Nobody's talking about Felix for the most part, it seems
3: like. Yeah, certainly not as much in in years past. And it's going to be, I mean, he's such a key to things, too, when you look at the rotation right now and how the rotation shakes out. He's going to be such a big key to what the Mariners want to do this year.
1: Well, you know, earlier this week, in fact, just yesterday, we had a chance to catch up with Jared Apoto on his uh, nearly weekly podcast, The Wheelhouse. And, we asked Jerry mostly about kind of his expectations for Felix coming into this 2018 season.
5: Felix has, the, whether it's the breaking ball spin, mm-hmm. it's the quality of the changeup. His pitch quality outside of his fastball is extraordinary. And, frankly, his performance within the context of his of his usability these last couple of years, 25 starts, I think, in 2016, 16 starts in 2017, you know, the aggregate performance is, is – Quite functional for us. If we can get Felix to, to the 2016 bulk with the 2017 approach, that's that's excellent for us. That's a good outcome.
1: Lou, did Dan ever drop an aggregate performance on <laughs> Oh, he did like the word aggregate. Believe me. Really? Yeah, he, he would say it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you hear Jerry talk about Felix, and obviously he's so optimistic from Felix. And the second clip we'll hear from Jerry talking about him, Dan, which I'm really eager to hear you comment on both, but especially on the second one, kind of speaks to Felix's evolvement or kind of ever-growing involvement as a pitcher and this idea of him maybe not trying to strike double-digit batters out a night, but try to get maybe double-digit ground balls.
2: Yeah, I think uh, it's a good point. I think one of the things that Felix was so good at for a long, long time because he had the great stuff, the electric stuff, and he still has electric stuff, but one of the things he did very, very well was pitch just outside the strike zone, and I think... Uh, was able to get a lot of swings and misses, a lot of uh, weak contact uh, just outside the zone. His ball would move so much, uh, he'd get that a lot. But I think guys began to sort of catch up, and I think one of the importance, uh, you know, the importance of the analytics and and offense is guys being having good strike zone awareness, understanding the strike zone, uh, and only swinging at pitches in the strike zone. So I think over time... Guys began to lay off those pitches a little bit more. I think you began to see his walks uh, begin to go up just a hair, and his you know his efficiency as a pitcher just wasn't at, at what we were accustomed to. I think now he's beginning to to understand that. He probably has to f- fill up the strike zone a little bit more uh, to get guys uh, off the taking thing, and then he'll begin again to, to, to work outside the zone and, and get those uh, weak contacts or strikeouts. So I, I expect him... Uh, really to make these adjustments, and and he's not alone. I mean, as as veteran guys get older, uh, they've got to make adjustments as they
1: go. Well, here's Jerry talking about his evolution to being uh, maybe a little bit more of a ground ball guy.
5: You know, he has succeeded because he's confident. We don't want to take that confidence away. We believe in him. He believes in himself. At some point, the player adapts. And I really do think that what we saw last year from Felix is he started to adapt. You know, he's still confident in himself. He knows what he can do. And, you know, in 2016, it was a big adjustment for him. In 2017, I I, I think we saw what Felix can be capable of. We just didn't see it over a, a fully – I guess if you extrapolate what he did over a long season, the results are there.
1: Reason for optimism, I suppose, if you're Jerry, when you look at the numbers. And, and he's right. I mean, the walk rate was not as high last year as it was the previous year, and yes he gave up home runs last year but everybody gave up home yeah. runs last year. Yeah.
3: To me the key there are two keys for Felix health being one and that's kind of the obvious one. Right. And number 2 is the walk rate because you peel back the numbers last year opponents batted 190 against the changeup. batted 160 against the slider. The year before that the numbers very similar against the changeup 177 you know they're not squaring him up. They're still not squaring mm-hmm. him up. Got to stay away from the walk, so that's, that's going to be the big key for him. But, yeah, there is reason for optimism, I think, when you peel back some of the numbers and just see he's still getting weak contact. And that, that is a huge key, especially getting ground balls, which is an obvious.
1: You know, Dan, we've heard Mike Trout talk about this. We've heard Albert Pujols talk about this in terms of Felix, two guys who have faced Felix for a while now. And that is they would rather face a pitcher who is pumping exclusively heat right, and maybe a breaking ball than a guy who is throwing low 90s and can basically touch any corner he wants at any time and has movement on four four various offerings of a pitch.
2: Yeah, and I, th- I think you're right. And, and I know one of the reasons that uh, Pedro Martinez had so much success over the course, course of his career, and, and he did have a 95-plus fastball, but it was his ability to throw all four pitches at any time. And that's exactly what they're talking about. It's the uncertainty of knowing on an account what – what pitch you're going to get, and and you're you're forced to almost sit on a pitch, and if you don't ever get that in the at bat, uh, you're just not going to be able to, to have a good at bat. So I think I think their point is good. the the, the thing that that stuck out to me in, in what Jerry said there was the word adapt, and I think that uh, Felix is, is beginning to understand that, and, and it's taken you know a couple of years for him uh, to, to to understand what what that is all about. But but adapt really is, is as you get older, as as your pitching changes. Uh, as the league makes adjustments to you, you need to make adjustments. And all, all the guys that I was able to catch over the years were always trying to adjust and always trying to make, um, you know, to, changes to how they approached pitching. And and I think about Jamie Moyer, who later in his career really developed that, that devastating changeup. I think about, uh, you know, Freddie Garcia, a guy who had a great curveball, great changeup, a great sinker, but then really started to understand and, and develop a slider that, that helped him to – Sort of elongate his career, and even a, a Randy Johnson, who had devastating stuff, was always working on either a two-seam fastball or a changeup. And as he, you know, moved on in years, he was able to use those pitches uh, more and more, and that uh, created a lot of longevity for him as well. So I think Felix is just learning this. He's got the four pitches, uh, and and for him, uh, it's just a matter of of finding that right mixture. Uh, and, 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 and adapting a little bit, to, like we said, to, to a little bit more in the strike zone because he's getting that weak contact. And I, I, I look for him to come out here this year and have a, a big season because I, I think he's taken this offseason very seriously, and, and he's going to be ready to roll.
1: That famous Randy Johnson changeup, is that what you're saying? <laughs> That's
2: exactly what I'm saying. But, but to be honest, I mean, you know, he, it was a pitch that, that he worked on. He'd throw one or two in a ball game. Uh, for us, and and then as he got a little bit older, he had to throw it a little bit more and more, and and it's again, it's it's it speaks to what Trout is talking about in Pujols. Sure, it's the uncertainty uh in, when you're standing in that batter's
1: box. Well, I think this is obviously something Jerry is very eager to see how it unfolds for Felix this season. Scott Service, obviously, everyone listening as well, and you'd have to think Felix uh kind of has an axe to grind after the last two seasons, uh, personally, to, to to get back on top and be as close to the guy that we know that he can be. So. Uh, hopefully good things to come from Felix here in 2018. Well, we are just underway here with tonight's Hot Stove show. When we come back, we will hear from Mariner's first base coach, just a fantastic guy, eager to talk with Chris Prieto, coming up after this quick break.
0: Back to more of the Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app.
1: Well, the time is now to join the club as a Mariner's season ticket holder, locking in the best seats for the best prices to catch all the action at Safeco Field for this upcoming season. You can pick up more information on the many benefits you'll enjoy as a Mariners season ticket holder. Just Simply go to Mariners.com slash 18. Well, we're looking forward to this conversation. It'll be a two-parter. Aaron Goldsmith, Gary Hill, Mariners Hall of Famer, Dan Wilson. Joined now on the phone from his home in Arizona, Chris Prieto, Mariners' new first base
6: coach. Chris, how you doing, man? Hey, guys. Good evening. Thanks for having me on. Oh,
1: thank you for joining us. You know, we say new first base coach in that, that is your new role but you've of course been with the Mariners for a number of years now how uh, how excited are you for this this new uh, on-field position with the club
6: oh man i I'm, I'm very excited i i appreciate um you know jerry and scott entrusting in me to 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 make make this step and and uh, i can't wait to get started
1: we know that you've had uh, some real interaction with d gordon you were an outfielder during your playing yeah. days. Can, can you give us some insight uh, as you've worked with D? What now? Have you been with him in person a couple of times now?
6: Yeah, we went out to Florida t- two times. Um, gosh, this guy impresses me a lot. He he is such a worker. He he's got a fire. He wants to be be perfect in everything that he does. And and uh, you know I can't wait to to get started in spring training with him.
3: When you work with someone who hasn't. A- played a position what's the starting point
6: uh you know for me because he's been in the middle of the field uh, uh i don't think it'd be that difficult but mm. you know the basic the basic things like attacking ground balls and uh getting behind fly balls uh those those type of things uh you know he, he's not covering a base anymore he's covering ground and he's got to work with two other guys out there so he just got to get used to the, to that uh, unit, and uh, uh, spring training is going to be big for him.
2: Pre-Dan Wilson, how are you?
6: Hey, Dan.
2: How's it going? Everything very, well?
6: Everything is, is going very well.
2: I, I'm curious. Good, very well, thank you. I'm curious with D, Uh, you know, a lot of people say that center field is kind of the easiest outfield position because most balls are on an angle. Uh if you can speak to that, is that true? Is that something that uh, you've talked to Dee about? Is that something that's kind of aiding in his adjustment?
6: Yeah, no, it, it's definitely true. There's just more ground to cover in center field. Everything's in front of you. So um, the corners can be difficult because those balls have a hook to them, uh, whether a left-handed or right-handed hitter. So it's it's a tough read on the corners, but you've got to be able to have that the ability to cover ground and close close in on balls and 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 what she has so um it's a perfect fit for him
1: now chris i am curious about this because when when d was in town i guess at this point it was a couple of weeks ago he told us that when he got the news that he had been traded and jerry told him right away that he'd be in center field he said honest to goodness the next day he got this news i think sometime in the evening the next day he went to Dick's Sporting Goods, and he bought a red outfielder's glove. And he said he, he said he's since moved on to a glove that's been broken in. Did, was he using the red outfielder's glove when you were working with him, or did he have a broken-in glove by that point?
6: You know what? I don't know if it was broken in. It wasn't red. Um, but we were discussing, you know, glove types, and, and it was it's all new to him. So he didn't know, you know, what kind of pocket he wanted or how big the glove is or the, how big the glove he wanted was. So, you know, it's – he he finally figured out something that he likes and and it's all comfort so it does, it didn't really matter but yeah I think he's happy with what he has now.
1: <laughs> Can you speak a little bit just to his athleticism and how much you have seen it? Just I mean, now, let's not read too much into this, right? These aren't game. This isn't in a game. This is on a field in the off season. But still, to your eye test, just kind of how fluid it looks, how natural it might look for him, and kind of the. The earliest, most basic of tests that a coach like yourself can put him through during this change.
6: Yeah, I mean he he he's such a smooth runner. He's got great feet. Um, obviously, he closes in with his speed. Uh, I mean, it, it's impressive uh, uh, physically. I I think I don't think there'll be a, a problem at all uh, whether or not he can go track a baseball. I think it's going to be more just the feel of. Uh, in spring training, just kind of getting the feel for the speed of the game in and, and the outfield and seeing runners run in front of him instead of by him and uh, just understanding, you know, throwing the bases and, and that kind of stuff. But um, as far as athleticism, he's, he's off the charts exactly what you want.
2: Chris, you mentioned some of that stuff about, you know, runners running and that kind of thing. Is spring training going to be, you know, in your mind, is that going to be enough of a test for him? Uh, is enough enough reps for him to kind of really get a good feel for what that position is going to be like during the season?
6: Well, yeah, I, I hope he gets tested, that, and yeah. that's the thing. Uh, we 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 need him to get tested uh, uh, as much as possible, so that by the time spring or spring training is over and the season starts, he's got a real good comfort level uh, to play.
3: You you were a, an outfielder. Were you always an outfielder playing baseball?
6: Yeah, I was always a I was always a center fielder, uh, lead off type player. Um, played a little bit of first base actually in college, but yeah, I'm, I'm mostly a, an outfielder.
1: This is Chris Pareto, our guest here on the Hot Stove Show, Mariners first base coach. Chris, have now you have
6: how many kids do you have,
1: Chris? I've got three kids. That's three kids. Okay, so with with all the toys around the house and all the things <laughs> that come along with being a dad, like. How many pieces of protective equipment can you hold at once at first base because surely around and this is just like dad duty right you're just carrying stuff all the time
6: Yeah you know I hadn't even thought of that but uh yeah that's um I guess I got to get used to saying back and I got to get used to carrying uh, carrying their equipment uh, until one of the bat boys comes down and and grabs it from me but uh, yeah, that's that's going to be exciting to I hope I'm holding a lot of a yeah, lot that's of right. stuff. Let's put it that
1: way. <laughs> when you know when when a player gets news of whatever they're getting called up or they're getting traded, I mean it's a, it's obviously a really big deal. You you were already in the big leagues, but this is a I, mean, I think it's important for the, the you know the average fan listening to realize, you know, how how big of a deal this must be for you in in your life and your family's life and your career. I mean, when you found out that you would be kind of you know an on-field guy for the Mariners and a team that you've put in years with at this point, I mean, how special of a moment was that for you?
6: I mean, yeah, I, I, it was really unexpected. Um, you know, I've been the replay guy for the last three years, and and you know, I, I was kind of going into the to the off season hoping I would retain that position, and and. Uh, you know, Jerry and Scott called me in and, and, and gave me this opportunity. So, yeah, it's, it's huge for, for myself, my, my wife, and, and my family. So, um, yeah, um, I'll try to do the best that I can and, and, and try to make these guys better every day.
2: Free, let's go back a couple of years or three years ago. I remember being, it was one of my first spring trainings uh, as, as a coordinator down in the minor leagues. I remember going over, I think you were the, the high A ball coach or manager at the time. I remember going over to the field uh, to do some work over there, and there was no manager on the field to be found. I think Lloyd had come down or someone had come down to get you and, and immediately had brought you up uh, to discuss, you know, this this new position with the Mariners. And I just remember, you know, collectively as an organization, the guys down there feeling really excited for you and, and at the opportunity at that point. You know, what, what goes through your mind or, or what, went, what went through your mind during that time? You know, I, I got to assume it's similar to maybe what what you were experiencing this offseason. season.
6: Well, yeah. I, I mean, when I got the job originally was the the special projects coach, and I think I, we were on field five and yep. we had just gotten beat pretty bad, and I had a pretty passionate conversation with the with the team and and uh, you know, somebody came down. I can't remember who it was. But they 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 said, hey, uh, they want to interview you for a for a major league job in about 15 minutes, and I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah, that's that's a good. That's a good joke, um, but yeah, they said no. Get in there, go shower, and get it, get up there, and and so you know, within a 45 minute period, I've got a major league job, and it it, was, it just happened so quick. I went up, interviewed, um, you know, they said, do you want this job? Of course, I, I called my wife, and she was ecstatic, and and so, it, yeah, that's that's how it happened. Well, we are eager to
1: talk to Chris Moore. We want to dive a little bit into your days in the replay booth, among other things, Chris. And So we're going to take a quick break. Chris is going to hang with us. He's going to listen to some wonderful whole music. And when we come back, uh, part two with Mariners' new first base coach, Chris Prieto, coming up after this time out on the hot stove.
0: All things Mariners, all off season. The hot stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Welcome back inside the hot stove.
1: Aaron Goldsmith, Dan the Man Wilson, Gary Hill, joined once again on the phone by Mariners first base coach Chris Prieto. And, okay, Chris, we want we want you to take us inside um, one of your old responsibilities, inside the belly of the beast, inside that replay control room. I mean, what what is that like when the phone rings and it's Scott Service on the other end and it's the ninth inning and it's a one-run game and you've got 30 seconds to figure out less than that, you've got, just a number of seconds to figure out what the heck the Mariners are going to do with this replay. Are they going to challenge or not? What's that like?
6: Yeah, it, it, it can be stressful, especially when you have players in there yelling and screaming challenge, challenge, <laughs> <laughs> but really, you know, you, you gotta, you gotta learn, you know, who to listen to and, and who to tune out. And, uh, you know, Jimmy Hartley, our, our video coordinator, he, er, he's really good. Um, he helps out a lot, but, um, yeah, it can be stressful. I, I would say, um, really, the, the the fifth, sixth inning can be the the, the most stressful because you don't want to lose your challenge at that point. There's still some game left. The ninth inning is kind of easy if you have your challenge because you can just use it and then uh, it, it, you can go to an umpire uh, review after that. So it's really you don't want to you don't want to have outs left. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, it could be it could be pretty pretty stressful. I just got done training Anthony Suzuki, who's going to take over that role. Uh, I, I flew out to Seattle, and, and um, he seems to he seems to uh, you know take to it pretty good, and he's learning all the the technical side of it. And uh, so I'm anxious to keep helping him, and and uh, we'll see how it goes.
3: We keep stats and everything. Did you keep your uh, challenge stats?
6: You know, uh, I thought I was pretty cool the first year I did it, and then. Uh, uh, last year we didn't do as well, so I stopped. I stopped paying attention. <laughs> I figured if you're right around fifty percent, you're doing okay. It's it's funny because sometimes sometimes the game dictates whether or not you challenge or not. So um, you may have a, a a situation where you feel like uh, there's a higher percentage or a lower percentage, and you just you just try it just because you have the opportunity to do it, and you may not win it. So I, I don't I don't particularly look at at that statistic you know because it doesn't it doesn't make who you are in that in that in that chair
2: pre in training anthony what was your biggest you know couple biggest points that you kind of passed along to him in, in his training
6: well really the 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 technical side of it just learning the buttons and, and being really comfortable with the keyboard because there's there's quite a few buttons that you have to have to be uh very comfortable with Touching two buttons at the same time, speeding it up, slowing it down, um, and, and really that's the the biggest thing. Once you get your your fingers right on the keys, um, then the game kind of you can kind of just you know look at the game and, and the game happens and you make the right call. But really, it's it's the keyboard itself that you have to get used to. It's like playing a video game.
3: So you get to watch a uh, major league baseball in person this year for the first time in a while, right?
6: Yeah, to... I'm excited about that. <laughs> Being in the dugout again, I've, I've been away from the dugout for five years. So, you know, spring training's kind of nice because I'm in the dugout. There is no replay. Um, but really it's not the same as a major league. And this will be the first time major league uh, games that I've been to since I played in a major league game back in 2005. So you're talking a long time since I've been in actual major league dugout.
1: Like releasing you to kept, out of captivity now, <laughs> yeah. Chris. This is fantastic. Exactly. We, we had no idea this promotion I, I meant can't. so much.
2: <laughs> you know, a, 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 I, can't, I can't wait. Actually, Gary brings up a good point because I've seen you in BP, and you're a little modest about your first base uh, performance because you you can pick it over there. There's no question about that. I've I've seen it, but you're going to be standing 90 feet away from a big league hitter without a glove. Have you thought about that at all? Have you thought about the uh, the uh, the laser missiles that come your way from time to time.
6: Well, I am 45 now, but I used to have pretty quick feet. So <laughs> hopefully, my feet won't fail me. I I know better than to try to make plays. It's just about getting out of the way. So if I can just get out of the way, <laughs> I'll be happy. <laughs> Perfect. A couple minutes
1: left <laughs> with Chris prieto Mariners first base coach. Now, Chris, do you? I guess you'll probably be able to answer this question better once you kind of get into the swing of things with your new role, but. After spending so many years essentially in the replay booth for the Mariners, did you find yourself watching baseball differently than you had before?
6: I, I, I'm sorry, I missed that last part you said. Did
1: you find yourself watching baseball differently than you had before, given your time as the Mariners' replay coordinator?
6: Uh, n- not really, actually. Uh, maybe the only thing is watching watching the, the, the batter runners and the runners on base touching the bases. I find myself doing that a little bit more uh, when I watch a game live. Um, but other than that, I, I I think I watch the game just the same. Um, yeah, so that would be the only thing is just watching watching the base runners touch the bases.
1: <laughs> hey, we, you know, we talked a lot about D Gordon and him and him making his transition to the outfield. But as an outfield guy, when you think back to the outfield from last year and what we project to obviously see this year as well, uh, with Gamble and with Hanniger, uh, mm-hmm. and what we saw with Heredia, and what was your what were your takeaways last year about this this outfield speed that from the Mariners that we hadn't seen in a long, long time, especially with all three outfield positions a season ago.
6: Uh, I mean, as far as the skill level and the speed and the ability to cover ground, it's 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 pretty cool to to, to be able to, to coach these guys. I'm excited. Um, you know, there's a there's a high ceiling for these guys, and and I know D, um, you know he really wants to be the quarterback. He wants to go in. He doesn't want to just kind of fit in. He wants to kind of lead and 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 really take charge in the outfield. So I'm anxious to see him. Uh, I know him and uh, Gamble actually met with him in in Florida while I was there, and they got along great. Uh, uh you know I hit some balls to him, and and it was kind of cool to just see. Him in, him in center and, and, and gambling left, and calling each other off. And, and so it's it's going to be good with all those guys.
3: Along those lines, how impressed were you with Heredia last year, who was really plus in three different outfield positions?
6: Heredia has an amazing ability to track the baseball. He can run directly to the spot. And I, I am very impressed with that ability. It's You know, you don't see that a lot um, with with outfielders. He he can he can literally take the right angle, the right footwork, and run right to the spot. And and you you just it amazes me how well he is around the track, um, how well he goes around, uh, even when he plays the corners, and how comfortable he is making catches on the wall. Um, he's just a, a special player.
2: You know, you mentioned the the speed and athleticism. The one thing maybe the outfield doesn't have, especially with D Gordon sort of making the switch, is a lot of experience. Is that were you at all, or is that something that you guys are going to talk about a lot in spring training?
6: We will, we will cover a lot of, a lot of that stuff. Um, uh, you know, one thing that I'm, as far as D's concerned is I'm worried about the difference of like the use of his legs versus what, what normally happens at second base, even when you're not even playing, just running out to your position versus running out to your position at second base takes a toll throughout a season. So, uh, you know his his leg care, little things like that are, are I'm I'm paying attention to, and I told him, you know we got to really, pay, especially his first year playing center field, we have to really watch his legs and how he uses them because obviously his legs are his biggest asset. So we want to make sure we monitor that and 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 that you know you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, this is
1: good when we see. Gamble and Hanniger carrying him out to center field. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we won't be alarmed. It's just, this is maintenance over the course of well, the season.
6: It, exactly. If you see him walking, walking from from uh, second base out to the outfield, you'll know why. <laughs> <laughs>
4: hey,
1: Chris. Chris, it's so kind of you to take some time out of your evening. We know you're a family man, uh, but all the rest uh, to the uh, Prieto family, and we'll be seeing you uh, very soon from now uh, down in Peoria. Thanks for all the insights and the good laughs. Uh, you're one of the best. You're one of our favorites. Thanks for joining us, man.
6: Thanks for having you guys. Really appreciate it. Absolutely.
1: Chris Pareto, Mariner's new first base coach, and uh, just an all-around great guy and exciting news for him. And, and we'll be seeing a lot more of Chris uh, over the course of uh, – well, you'll be seeing a lot more of Chris uh, on the field, over the telecasts and uh, whatnot over the course of the season. So, Chris Pareto, kind enough to join us here on the hot stove. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Now the rest of the division, namely the Texas Rangers, and a little Edgar talk with a Hall of Fame voter who covers the Rangers, Evan
0: Grant of the
1: Dallas Morning News, joins us next after this quick break.
0: Back to more of the hot stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app.
1: Buy more and save. Discounted tickets are available for groups of 20 or more. Flexible seating options, private hospitality, and picnic packages are all available to complete your group Day at the ballpark, you can pick up more information, book your group date for this upcoming season by going to Mariners.com slash groups. Happy you're with us here on the hot stove, Aaron Goldsford alongside Mariners Hall of Famer Dan Wilson. Gary Hill is here also. Sorry, Gary, that's a tough act to follow.
3: I thought you were going to call me Mariners Hall of Famer. <laughs> I was really excited for a second.
1: But. Hey, we are, we're excited to welcome in on the phone from the Metroplex uh, one of our favorite guys, and you hear him over the course of the baseball season. Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News. Evan, uh, happy uh, happy New Year to you. We haven't we haven't talked since the New Year. How are you, man?
7: That is the most disingenuous. I'm so excited to have <laughs> this <laughs> I've
1: ever heard. Evan and I have a uh, a uh, very sugary, venomous relationship that dates back to uh, my time with the Miners with the Rangers system. But uh, in, in all honesty, oh, in, in we all, love you, of, Goldie. I know you're you're one of our favorites as well. Uh, and Evan's one of the best beat writers in the country and uh, one of the uh, best guests on Mariners Radio, and we know tonight will be no exception. And, uh, Evan, we want to talk to you a little bit about the Rangers and the outlook for this season. Uh, Goodness knows we see you guys plenty. But before we get to that, we know that you are a staunch Edgar supporter. You are a Hall of Fame voter, and you vote for Edgar. uh, You have voted for Edgar repeatedly. Uh, What was kind of your hope level as the announcements were coming down as to whether or not you thought Edgar would get in this year?
7: Well you know, interestingly enough, Aaron, I was I was actually in Mayaguez, Puerto Rico when the uh, when the announcement came down at a uh, at a Puerto Rican league winter game, uh the play in game between uh Mayaguez and uh and Santurce and it was announced who over the intercom at the stadium who had made the Hall of Fame and obviously Edgar, uh it was announced that Edgar did not make it. And I was really interested to see what the crowd's reaction was. And, you know, in, in Puerto Rico right now, there's a new normal. Um, that's not really very normal at all. Uh, and there wasn't much reaction from the crowd. I, I think mostly because I don't think people got their hopes up too high. Uh, I feel like, you know, Edgar belongs in the Hall of Fame because I think he redefined what the designated hitter is. Um and, and I think that that's one of those kind of categories for me in terms of how you define a hall of famer that's, that's kind of hard to quantify, but when you've got the award for you name, you know when you got the award for your position named after you i I think pretty much that's a good qualification um I'm just encouraged to see that he got over seventy percent, and as you guys are well aware and have documented the The fact of the matter is that just everybody who's ever reached 70 percent with years left on the ballot has ended up in the Hall of Fame. And and I think more and more people among the the voting populace are are seeing that or are acknowledging that, listen, not all stats are the same. Um, We're not in an era anymore where we just care about like the three thousand hit threshold or five hundred home runs or, or blah, blah, blah. We care about things like. How a guy defined his position, and until David Ortiz came along, Edgar was the best DH in the history of, of, of the of the DH. It's a quarter century of that position, he defined it, and I think that's good enough for me for him to be in the Hall of Fame.
3: So, how confident should Mariner fans be that next year will be the year he gets in in his last year of eligibility?
7: I just, you know, I just go back and I look at the at the past performances of guys The for him to jump, I think it was 12% from 58 to 70 this year. And the history of guys who have reached 70 with years left on a ballot is, I believe a hundred percent of those guys who have, have ended up making it into the hall of fame, uh, the voting, the, the ballot, you know, the the, the folks that vote on the ballot and the BBWA, you have to have 10 years of service, uh, to become a voting member. And each year, a few more, few more members are added and a few more drop off and the younger members i think if you go and look at the demographics of the voters i think you would get a higher percentage of edgar votes among the younger voters and a lower percentage of edgar votes among the older voters and so i think that that also kind of portends success for edgar for edgar next year And, and and i hope i hope he does make it i really do um this year, it's a huge class. I'm glad to see that we've got a, a big class again this year. But I, there's a place in, in Cooperstown, for Edgar Martinez. I have come to believe that, um, and I, I just feel like the momentum at this point in time is such that he will he will ultimately end up enshrined in 2019.
1: Dan, you don't have an opinion on this, do you? <laughs> <laughs> no, none at all. <laughs>
2: no, I'll tell you, I, you know, uh, I think just the, the ability, I think, uh, of this uh, of, of Edgar and his hitting ability speaks for itself. But I think, you know I, know, I know there's a lot that can be said about, you know, clutch hitting and whether it exists or not. However, I think for me, you know, being in the middle of a lineup – and putting up the numbers he did, uh, when he was expected to, to go up to the plate and get a big hit, he was able to do that. And I think that takes a special uh, talent. It takes a special uh, mentality to be able to do that. And he did that so well. And to me, that's what sets him apart. I think, you know, you, you look at all the years he hit behind Griffey um, and, uh, you know, probably made Ken a better hitter. It just it, it just is he just was such a presence in that lineup, and and he could he had such a great command of the strike zone, and 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 he had such a good eye of the strike zone, uh, but his his ability to come up with the big hit uh, when we needed it was just um, uncanny, and to me that that speaks that's everything. It, it helps us. He helped us win so many games
1: because of it. Oh, no doubt. Uh, Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News is our guest here in the Hot Stove Show, and uh, Evan interesting you've been able to you've been putting out some uh, daily pieces on the rangers and what to expect and look for in spring training and one of the pieces you recently put out uh, was on something that not only plagued the rangers but quite frankly basically plagued every team in baseball last year and that was strikeouts and if i understand it correctly and i were i was reminded of this reading your piece seven that the rangers not only set a new franchise record for strikeouts but correct me if i'm wrong like essentially far and away set a new strikeout record for the franchise is that right
7: I think it was 240 uh, strikeouts over the previous record. They ended up with 1493 this year, I believe it was. So, um,
1: you know, is, is this kind of the new? Is this the new norm that John Daniels and Jeff Banister are are expecting? Not only for the Rangers or the rest of baseball, or kind of based on what you were saying, they're they're really trying to curtail this and send this the other direction by moves that they're making this winter.
7: Yeah, I think on the on the offensive side of the ball, the improvements are are going. To, listen, the, the Rangers' strikeout issue, Aaron, is double edged. They had way too many strikeouts on the offensive side, and not nearly enough strikeouts from their pitchers. Um, and they they feel like they can bring the number down on the offensive side a little bit. And pitching wise, which is where they made pretty much all of their moves this offseason, they feel like that number will go up. On the offensive side, I think we're all aware that strikeouts are more prevalent in baseball than they've ever been before. I think every year since 2009 it is now, Major League Baseball has set a new record for total strikeouts by hitters. Uh, But the Rangers, if you look at their lineup last year, the bottom half of their lineup, the number five position, had the most strikeouts in the American League. The number six position, had the most strikeouts in the American League. The number eight position had the most strikeouts in the American League. And seven and nine were four and two respectively. And so what Jeff Bannister was left to do a lot of the times last year was was construct a lineup just to try and break up clumps of strikeouts uh, and and maybe get some productive outs. I think they feel like Rugnet Odor, which was, was a big part of the strikeout issue last year, will improve. We'll make some adjustments. We'll focus a little bit more on a specific zone that he knows he can handle and try and attack that zone. I think the Rangers feel like Joey Gallo was had a bit more than adequate first full year in the big leagues, and they know Joey's going to be a big strikeout guy, but I think both he and the Rangers feel like there's a few more pitches he can go the opposite way with, make contact, have productive at-bats, and raise his batting average a little bit, raise his contact rate a little bit, uh, and bring the strikeout total down. Um, Those were the two biggest trouble spots in the order. You know, Mike Napoli was, was another big strikeout guy last year. He will not be back. The Rangers will have really essentially they'll move Gallo to first base, and he'll replace Napoli. And then in left field they will have some kind of platoon, Probably Ryan Rua and Drew Robinson. Possibly Willie Calhoun wins that position in 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 spring training. I think either way, those guys are going to pile up some strikeouts, but I don't think they're going to approach where Napoli was last year. He really had a bad year contact-wise. So I, I think they feel like naturally some of that stuff will come down. And on the pitching side of the ball, with the additions of of Doug Fisher Mike Miner, Matt Moore, to the rotation, those guys averaged, I think it was eight-and-a-half strikeouts per nine innings last year, whereas the Rangers starters averaged 6.2 or 6.3 strikeouts per nine innings. So they feel like they made it a real real priority this offseason to try and add some strikeout ability to the starting rotation.
3: What's your expectations of Miner being tried as a starter this year for the Rangers? I think that's going to be a really Uh, interesting – Aspect to look at with the Rangers,
7: I think. I think there's two real interesting aspects there, in that Minor and Matt Bush are going to spring training as mm-hmm. as starters, um, and they will make a decision for sure on Bush sometime during the spring. And I, I don't think they've ruled out the possibility that if they ended up uh, deep in the rotation, that they could still move Minor back to the bullpen. I, I think the the outcome of all this is the Rangers are as committed as they could be to trying to go with a six man rotation. Um, and I think that that six man rotation uh, or a five plus one is kind of the way Jeff Bannister describes it, just to ensure that their guys regularly all get five days of rest. Uh, they're going to have to monitor innings for Minor and for Bush. Mike had, Mike averaged 176 innings in three years with Atlanta, but over the last three years he's got 77 innings in the big leagues total. So I don't see them jumping him past. 125, 130 as a starter. And I think that you're going to have to meter that out. Same thing with Matt Bush. If, if, if you move him into the rotation, you're going to have to spread that out. So I think that what they do is they're going to look at trying to create some kind of six-man rotation. I think there will be some degree of, of even, for lack of a better term, finding a DL time for, for these guys just to give them a 10-day, two-week rest uh Sometime during the season, but listen from the Rangers' perspective, Mike Miner was a very effective starter with Atlanta before the arm injuries. He was a very effective 95 mile an hour reliever for Kansas City last year. If they can get the starting performance that he had with Atlanta previously at nine million dollars a year, it's the starting bargain of the offseason. So that's their that's their risk there. That's their investment, and I really think you know, guys. If you look at this team this year, Houston is obviously the prohibitive favorite in the American League West. The Angels have improved themselves significantly. The Mariners were a better team than the Rangers were come the end of last year. This is based on the contracts the Rangers have, based on the age of some guys, based on the holes they had last year, and based on the number of young guys they've got kind of still bubbling up in in, in the major leagues. It's kind of a transition year, and if you're going to try something funky, this is the time to do it, and I think that's kind of their approach.
1: Hmm. Wow, very interesting, very interesting, no surprise. Uh, Evan, hey, man, this is great. We really appreciate you coming on with us tonight. We know it's late there in uh, the Lone Star State, so uh, thanks for jumping on the hot stove with
7: us this evening. Uh, it's great to talk with you guys, and we will look forward to seeing you in Peoria at some point.
1: In time. You, you got it, man. You'll be on air with us again then. There he is, <laughs> Evan Grant. Uh, Fine beat writer for the Dallas Morning News. So when we come back, our trivia question after this
0: timeout. All things Mariners, all off season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710 Sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app. Now we wrap up the first hour here in the Hot Stove. We have just a
1: minute here, Dan. We just talked to Evan Grant, for the Dallas Morning News, about the strikeouts. League-wide, the Rangers setting a franchise record. Do you know what your high-water strikeout mark was in a single season? Wow. What a great
2: question. No, I really, really don't. I, I probably don't even want to
1: know. Like
3: 25.
1: So, interestingly, <laughs> it came it came in your all-star season when you slugged a career-best 18 home runs. So, like, we can say, oh, well, he struck out more because the power numbers went up. 88 strikeouts. Nice. Wow. 80. That's the most in your career in one season. 88. That's like... That's a month and a half for some guys. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that, Aaron.
2: That's that's nice of you.
1: I know. We're out I know. Of time now, but uh, <laughs> since uh, 2012, here's a trivia question: Only four pitchers have started 30 or more games in all six seasons. So since 2012, four pitchers, 30 or more starts in all six seasons. You know, all we ask is you name one of them, just one of the six, one of the four. Pardon me. Two zero six four two one three seven seven six. Gary is assuming that you are Baseball Reference Index subscribers like he is.
3: I can give you a hint. One of them's a Seattle
1: Mariner. A winner receives Mariner's men's or women's pajama set. We're back just after this.
0: It's time to talk Mariner's baseball. Holy smokes. With spring training just around the corner, we are geared up for baseball. This is at the wall, and it is gone into the bullpen for a two-run homer. Some serious hang time from Nelson Cruz. It's the hot stove. On 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Sports app. The back
1: half of the Hot Stove Show. Happy you're with us this evening. Aaron Goldsmith, Gary Hill, and the man Wilson. Dan, this was a, I got to tell you, you know, first of all, I I, I, I need to apologize. Oh, <laughs> <you>. <laughs> and I need to apologize to Gary. Get Thank off my you. lawn, Aaron. Yeah, it's, there it's it is. About <laughs> time. There it is. You know, this is about to come up because I was I was about to say, you know, these trivia questions, man. These are these are kind of beastly. You gotta you gotta be able to research a little bit. And and uh, you know, we got a new guy running the t- trivia questions now, Dan. And there's been a promotion that uh, we have been eyeing for some time, and it has been made official. The Mariners have officially announced it. Gary. We're thrilled, man. You are the new producer-engineer for the Mariner. Oh, well, thank you. you. Did you not know about this? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Did you did You not get the press? I didn't know this? we were going to
3: talk about that now. But, yes, thank you. I mean, this is this is well-deserved. Yeah, man. I'm very excited. I'm,
1: maybe some people are learning this for the first time. Maybe other people uh, like uh, me, saw this announced. <laughs> uh, but, I mean, for everybody, Gary, from, from Rick to uh, I know you and Kevin, like all of us, are, are very tight uh dave when he comes over onto radio uh dan of course mike's on radio uh every segment all the time uh man we are we could not be more ecstatic to have you with us not only at home but on the road as well and you're going to be doing you're doing everything you know this you are doing everything
3: yeah uh, my job description is like 90 pages <laughs> <laughs> no i'm thrilled i mean i'm a tacoma kid grew up with dave and rick and that's how that's how it all got sparked that's how the passion started for play-by-play and broadcasting, and now to be uh, in the same booth every day is—it's—I uh, don't have the words. It's incredible. I can't wait. I'm excited. It's great working with you most of the time. It's great working with Dan all the time. Well, you see, Les, <laughs> that was a good shot right <laughs> yeah, there.
1: That was good. Well done.
3: <laughs> see why I got promoted? Yeah, there, right it is. there. There it is. Do
1: you remember, by the way? Do you remember the first time that you went in to the Safeco Field radio booth, the home booth?
3: Oh, let me let me tell you about. The, fir- my, the first time I did pregame. So I prepped for my first. I was filling in. It was like a random May game. I prepped for this thing for hours. This was the most important baseball game that has ever been played. That's that's the amount I prepped for this. I was ready. So I'm in the booth. And our booth has kind of a lower or a play-by-play and Kevin Kremen. So it was Rick Riz to the left, Dave Niehaus in the middle, Kevin Kremen to the right. And then there's the upper part of the booth, kind of above, almost like stands. So I'm kind of sitting above them. And I have my notes in front of me. I have a headset on, and I hear down from the station, 10 seconds. I'm like, I am ready for this thing. I'm pumped, and I I look up for just a second, and I see Dave Niehaus slide the headset on. And I see Rick Riz slide the headset. And Kevin Kremen put his headset on, and I'm right in front of Dave Niehaus. And I had a moment of absolute terror as Dave, <laughs> like, Niehaus, like he's listening. Dave Niehaus is going to hear what I'm saying. <laughs> just panic. I mean, because he started it all. I mean, Dave is the one, listening to him growing up, he's the one that that sparked my passion. And <laughs> and I had a moment, just a moment of panic. And But I did it. I did the first segment. And he turned around and just kind of groveled. Great job, kid and that was it that was and uh it's a moment I will never forget, but it was incredible, so yeah, I remember and i mean it was it was just one year working with uh my idol, but it's a year I'll never forget.
1: Can you describe to people by the way the the hard drive of mariners' audio that you have i mean this is <laughs> this is the jackpot,
3: yeah, I've become uh the keeper of Mariner's Radio History, I guess, with my terabyte.
1: Is that what it is? Uh, wow. Two
3: terabytes. It's not full yet, but I am slowly transcribing all the, uh, turning all the cassettes and reel-to-reel into digital, and it's taken some time. I mean, all the game tapes, the highlights, the whole thing. Trying to capture all Mariners history, and did, I've come across some gems. Now did, did you tell them about this in the interview?
1: Like, did, was this part of the selling point? No, you know, never. like, like I'm the gatekeeper, and if you guys want this stuff. No, no, I do
3: this in my spare time. <laughs> I do this for fun.
1: I see. <laughs> well, uh, man, we are we're thrilled for this. And, uh, you know, we, Kevin, Kev, I, the best way I can describe Kevin in terms of uh, what he's done for the Mariners, the Mariners have been around for 40 full seasons, and he's been the producer engineer on radio for 35 of them. Yeah. Which is incredible, and uh, we all love him to pieces. And uh, we'll see him in spring training. He's already helped out on the hot stove. He's the best.
3: Yeah, he's the, the Absolute best.
1: Absolute best. And so we're going to be seeing still a lot of Kevin. And uh, his name will uh, forever be intertwined with Mariners radio. History. Oh yeah, there's, absolutely. There's, there's no way around that. That <laughs> no. is. He is as much a part of it as anybody.
2: You know, as as much of a, as a tough act to follow, Kevin is. He did play the banjo, and I'm curious, Gary, can oh. you play the ban- the banjo like?
4: Or, or anything. Well,
3: I've never played the banjo, but I, I assume I, I'd be good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that seems like the kind of thing you could just pick up and play really yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Oh to yeah. Right. yeah. 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 So I'm assuming yes. That's okay.
1: great. Okay. Well, First, we'll have plenty yeah. of time in spring training okay. to sort You have
3: one on you? <laughs> no. You know, the I know.
1: Okay. <laughs> like Andy Bernard. Uh, hey, so we've got the uh, Mariners trivia question here, which was: since 2012, only four pitchers have started 30 or more games in all six seasons. Can you name one of them? And uh, congratulations, Gary West of Kent. Who did he, name? he was able to, to uh, name uh, Max Scherzer, who is also joins the list, Gary, with uh, John Lester, Mike Leake, the Le Mariner that you were referencing, mm-hmm. and Ian Kennedy. And uh, for Gary's efforts, he will receive a uh, men's Mariners pajama set.
3: Nice. Dan Wilson's wearing them right now.
1: Yeah, modeling them very nicely, the Sunday alternates. It is getting close to bedtime. Uh, <laughs> so congrats, congrats to uh, Gary West of Kent.
3: The questions will be getting increasingly harder <laughs> week by week, so this will be fun. Uh, the,
1: yeah, these are uh, this is a different tier. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, that uh, Gary is a Play Index subscriber. I would expect nothing less. Uh, well, just around the corner, guys, we've got hour number two uh, in full force of the show. We're going to be hearing uh, Gary a nice piece he put together on a Truck Day, which was yesterday. We'll have a chance to hear from Mariners Clubhouse Manager Ryan Stiles, uh, but in just a few moments, we will be hearing from. Ron Fairley.
3: I'm excited about this.
1: How many are you... times are we going to play the, the, the Griffey call, the the home run
3: call? Well, we're playing it right away. So I, <laughs> I can tell you
1: that right off the, the kid has done it. The, kid's the kid done has
3: it. done yeah. it. All yeah. eyes. I love that. I love everything about that. Uh,
1: this is going to be fun. So we're going to step aside right now, and uh, when we come back on the other side, uh, we're going to have two segments with Ron Fairley, a newly published author, mm-hmm. by the way. So We'll be talking about that and uh, some Mariner's memories and a whole bunch of good stuff. Red's coming up on the other side after this timeout.
8: Well, all eyes are on this young man right now as he stands in. Griffey 0 for 2 tonight. And the first pitch from back is level. There it goes! See you later! Upper deck, Griffey has tied the
0: Major League record! Holy cow, the kid has done it! Home runs in eight consecutive games!
1: We've, we've actually asked that Curtis just play that in loop for the entire segment. <laughs> Uh, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill Jr. kind enough to be joined by uh, the man who made one of the uh, the great calls in franchise history, Ron Fairly. Uh, Ron, we we are so eager to talk to you about so many different things, but since we just heard that, I I have to ask, what what goes through your mind when you hear that highlight once again?
8: Well, that was pretty exciting. <laughs> I mean, good golly! I mean, and there wasn't any doubt about the ball leaving the yard. I mean, when Junior hit it, I mean. Just, it could have been 400 feet away, and it would have cleared it easily. But uh, yeah, that was that was pretty. I mean, hitting home runs in eight consecutive games, and uh, the thing I do remember that then the Junior came up again. I made Dave Niehaus have the call because I think if Junior would have hit it in nine consecutive games, I think it should have been uh, Dave Niehaus' call for it.
1: So are you saying that you actually – like it was your scheduled inning and
8: during the commercial yes. you said – Yeah, when the, Junior when Junior came up the following game to hit home runs and to set the record, I made Dave Niehaus uh, call his at-bat. He wasn't going to do it, but I said, well, there's going to be a lot of dead air. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and did not junior come remarkably close to going in nine straight games?
8: Well, well, yeah, he did. Uh, obviously he didn't do it. Right. But uh, to hit home runs in, in – that many consecutive games—it's uh, it's quite remarkable. I
1: feel like in the ninth game he had legend holds that he hit a, a very loud out uh, back to the track, or even up right up against the wall. But uh, Ron Fairley is joining us now—the the first of two segments that uh, Red is kind enough to uh, have with us this evening here on the Hot Stove Show. And uh, Ron, you, you've obviously been a, a pretty busy man. We are—we're looking at the cover of your new book, *A Fairly At Bat: My 50 Years in Baseball yep. uh, from the Batter's Box to the Broadcast Booth*. Uh, can you tell us about the labor of love of, of writing this book? And you have led one of the great baseball lives. There's plenty of good stuff in here.
8: Well, you know, you know, for years, you know, I told stories on the air, and some I could tell, some I couldn't. But, but <laughs> nevertheless, I had a lot of people that said that, gee, you should, you should write the book. And I said, no, nah, I wasn't going to do that. And then I got tired of playing golf so much during, <laughs> during my retirement. I said, well, maybe I, I ought to sit down and start writing. And uh, sure enough, I, I started from the very beginning and started filling in holes and remembering games, and uh, looked back on some really important games that I played in, and I started writing about them. And next thing you know i I got into it. It took me about a year and a half to 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 finish the book, but uh, and I found a writer that would uh, that helped me. Uh, I wrote the book and then turned it over to him, and he reorganized some of the stories. But it turned out I wanted to have something that someone could get a laugh out of. Uh, it's not a Jim Bouton book. It's not, it's not a tell-all thing type, uh, type of a book. It's, it's things that, that you would never read about in accounts of the game the following day. I mean, things that were said on the field, in the dugout, or when the game was over, that, uh, that people will, that might get a chuckle out of at night. And I think I did a pretty good job.
3: You mentioned Dave a moment ago. What was it like broadcasting with Dave Niehaus through the years?
8: Well, Dave. Well, first of all, you have to understand, Dave loved the Mariners. I mean, he was he was 100 behind those guys. And the thing that was funny was is that the things that Dave Dave would say when he was off the air that I got a big I got a great big kick out of. But he was such a fan that. He, They'd bring somebody in from the bullpen, and we'll break for commercial time up, and we will be right back. And then Dave would say, "You've got oh my wedding bringing that guy. <laughs> I hadn't got anybody out." You know, and then come back on the air, and then holy cow, here comes soon and so What a great job you know, he'd, he'd go, he'd go just the completely other way around. But but he would he would that would be one of the things. That and the other thing is, Dave did not have a very good sense of direction. And in spring training, for an example, when we came out of Peoria, there the, the complex. If you go to the right when you leave our booth, you walk back into the, the into the press box. When the game was over, you go to the left to get on the elevators, you go down, get in the parking lot, take off, and go wherever you're going to go for dinner. I always waited for Dave to to leave the the, the booth first, because about four or five times every spring. Dave would come out of the out of the booth and he would go to the right back into the press box, and i just let him go and then I turned around and say, "Hey, Dave, this way," and then he always told me what I could go do to myself <laughs> <laughs> and i got I got a kick out of that, and I let it go. And i i Dave and I had a lot of fun together. we really did
2: big red Dan Wilson here and and uh, I know I had- how are you?
8: I'm fine. How have you been?
2: Doing very well, thank you. And I know over the course of, of, of my career I was lucky uh, to to hear probably a lot of the stories that are in the book kind of firsthand, and I know that stories in baseball get passed down, and, and we love that. But, you know, looking back, are your are some of your better stories as a player or are they as a broadcaster? Where, where does it stack up uh, in, in terms of the, your stories that, that uh, you come across in the book?
8: Well, I, uh, there, I think there's a little bit of a mix, and I think more of them- you can attest to uh, as a player. Yeah. I mean, I, I miss the clubhouse. Yeah. The the the, the banter that goes on in in the in the clubhouse, and you know as well as I do what what guys do, uh, on and off the field, that you, you really get a, a a good chuckle at. Uh, and and if you played on, and don't make what major league team you played on. Uh, every one of them have stories. In fact, from the very beginning of of, of baseball. There have been more characters that are involved in baseball, I think, than any other sport. They've been around longer, and uh, I just think that there are more characters, and the more people find out about them, the more you're going to have some fun. In fact, when the Cubs became a professional team, they did that back in 1876. That was the same time that Custer was at the Little Bighorn, Horn. Yes. kind of give you a baseball reference uh, as to when the Cubs got. And we've had characters ever since then. And they're
2: relentless in that clubhouse.
8: Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I mean things that, that went on in, in the clubhouse and things, were some of the stuff was really good. And then sometimes they even transferred out onto the field. And the, an example is that Koufax was pitching. You know, whenever he pitched, we had a pitcher in our, on our ball club by the name of, of Pete Rickard. And Pete was a left-handed pitcher and had pitched the major leagues for about uh, – Oh, 10 or 11 years, mostly with Baltimore. But when he was with the Dodgers, he was the long man in the bullpen. And the only time Pete would go out and have a few drinks would be the night before Koufax. (laughs) That that Sandy was going to, you know, get knocked out in the second or third inning. Well, Pete went out this one uh, one afternoon, and lo and behold, Sandy got in trouble in the first inning, and they got Pete up in the bullpen. And Sandy got out of the inning Uh, in the second inning. Sandy went back out to the mound and he got in trouble again. And Alston got him up for the second time and went out to the mound. That day, I have to be playing first base. And so when Alston got to the mound, there were three of us that are standing there. He had Alston, Koufax, and myself. And it was a hot day, temperature above 95 degrees. And Alston looked at Sandy and he says, How do you feel? And Sandy says, Better than the guy you have warming up. (laughs) <laughs> and that's when Austin just turned around and walked back on, on into the dugout. We eventually got hot. We scored some runs, and Sandy was the winning pitcher. Ron Fairley's But that, our... never appeared, that never appeared in the box score or anything you read <laughs> about the accounts of the game.
1: That's fantastic. Ron Fairley is our guest here on the hot stove. And, uh, Ron, can you uh, describe for us, for those who have not had a chance to uh, pick up your book uh, quite yet, uh, Fairley at Bat, can you tell us and describe a little bit about this picture we see of <laughs> – you and Dave in a camera well, both wearing headsets with the one differentiator that Dave was wearing a batting helmet with his headset.
8: <laughs> well, <laughs> Dave, Dave says, I can't do the game from down there without a helmet. And I said, why not? He says, if the ball comes over there, how am I going to get out of the way? But, and I just said, why don't you duck? <laughs> you know? <laughs> But he, I, I had I had to laugh at him. We did not have a screen in front of us, so I mean the fact that he wore a helmet, that, it just it just looked kind of funny as far as I was concerned. But uh, like I said, we had we Dave and I had a lot of laughs. One of the things that he did in spring training that I really got a chuckle out of was that he had he kept wearing every spring these old sandals, and they were old. They were getting to be kind of ratty, and so I kept mentioning to him, "Well, you ought to get a new pair." So finally one day. We went over after a ball game and we got the, a new pair of sandals. About two or three days later, we had to go to Scottsdale and I picked him up at his apartment to go over to the, the ballpark. And I happened to notice he had one pair of new shoes and one old shoe on. <laughs> and I, I didn't say much, but I got to Scottsdale and I said, Dave, I said, I, I like, I like your, your shoes. I, they really look sharp. And he looked down. He saw he had one old one on and one new one on. He says, "I got a." Before he looked down there, he said, "Man, I got a pair just like this back at the hotel." So, (laughs) I I got a big out of that because he didn't realize that he had one old one and one new one on. So until he got to the ballpark, and then he was a little embarrassed.
1: No, until you said something. That's. uh... Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
8: Yeah, Well, he once again he told me what I could do. Uh, well, this is just the
3: start, uh, Rob. We, but we,
8: we, we all—it was all in it was all in fun. We, sure. we we laughed about stuff like that. So
4: that's terrific. The no.
8: other thing that Dave did—a a couple on the post-game shows—they uh, decided that they wanted us to be on camera, and so we had to turn and 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 face the camera where the the field was in the background, and Dave, in the process of putting on his jacket and. And and putting his headset on and picking up the hand mic, he picked my microphone up, <laughs> and so we did the post game show, and I didn't say one word because <laughs> Dave had my microphone. <laughs> and then there, there, there was there was another time, where we did the post game show, and we were supposed to alternate. Dave does the first play, I do the second play, and Dave the third, and I do the fourth, so on, and there were about six or seven plays had highlights of the game and dave was in a role he he did he did every one of the plays and during worst and i'm standing there with a smile on my face just waiting for an opening and then some guy in the truck would say to me jump in there ron and i couldn't do anything and the next guy would say ron shut up you're talking too much i had a- I had a rough time trying to keep a straight face, and Dave doing the highlights to all of these games, and he and there was no opening, and that was when the, one of the guys down the truck said, "When Dave wants the post game show to be over, the big boy is headed to the bar, and the post game show is going to be over real quick." And that's just about the way he he did it sometimes, and, and but he was very good. I mean, he was never stuck for words, and he was always. Always right on cue with everything. The other thing Dave, Dave did that I got a chuckle out of—he kept a, a, a little, like a, like a timer that was had sand in it that you turn over like a three-minute egg thing, and that was he would put that on. By, and was remind him to repeat the score when well, the little glass was empty. I never saw him turn it over. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, he had that thing sticking out there and never turned that <laughs> thing over.
1: Uh, uh, right. these Red, these are just priceless stories. Uh, we're going to take a quick time out. Uh, we've got more with Ron Fairley here, The Hot Stove Show, coming up in just a moment.
0: All things Mariners, all off-season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app.
8: I can't say in my own mind, honestly, that I think I was the best hitter. But I said, if they'll put me in a group of Ruth and Gary and Simmons and Fox and DeMaggio and Greenberg and Heilman and Cobb, I said, that'll be good enough for me. And... Uh, I think that uh, that's the way I really feel.
1: Happy to have you back with us once again on the hot stove, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill.
3: That was a piece of interview from Dave Niehaus and Ted Williams. We're here with Ron Fairley. And, Red, you have a portion in your book about Ted Williams. Is he the greatest hitter in baseball history, do you
8: think? Well, you know, I'll tell you how good he was. There were a couple of managers that would not allow his, their pitchers to watch him take batting practice. Now, what do you what do you think that does? I mean, it was too it was it was too demoralizing. Ted knew the game of hitter versus pitcher better than any player I have ever been around. Ted was also the most domineering type of person. I mean, he was John Wayne on steroids. Uh, I mean, there was nothing that he did not know about the game. I'll give I'll give an example. In the 1959 All-Star game, it was played in the Coliseum in Los Angeles. And in that game, Drysdale threw a pitch to Ted in, in on his hands. And Ted popped the ball up about 430 feet away. The right field fence in the Coliseum was 440 feet. And they ran back. The outfielder ran back and caught the ball about 430 feet away. That ended the inning, and Don had a smile on his face like, whoa, whoa, I thought, I thought it was gone. Ten years later, Ted is managing the Washington Senator, and they're playing in Vero Beach at Holman Stadium in spring training, and Don and I are standing in right field. The bus pulls up. Ted gets off the bus, and we walk over to say hi to him. And Don walks up and says, hi, Ted. He didn't say hello. How do you do? Or you know what? He says, what were you laughing at in the 1959 All-Star game when I popped up that lousy pitch you threw me? And Don had to think about it for a second. He says, you know, I, I threw the pitch, and he said, I kind of I smiled because when you hit it, I thought the ball was gone. Ted says, I thought I got enough of it, too, but I just wanted to know, what, what why were you laughing? And that bothered him so much. Then when we finished talking, we went back into the outfield area, and Don turned to me, and he says, Ron, I've had a lot of batters swing at pitches that, that I've thrown, but that was the most vicious swing anyone ever took off of me. I just kind of it's just a side story, but Ted Ted knew the game of hitter versus p- pitcher better than anybody else. Bob Lemon will attest to that Hall of Fame pitcher. He says he would got on he got on the batting, you know, on the on the on the mound and started his wind up when he got about halfway through his delivery, he knew what and Ted knew he knew that Ted knew what was coming. So I never fooled him on a pitch. And he was he was tough to tough to fool uh, on anything. So yeah, I look back and when you talk to guys that, that had to pitch to Ted Williams, uh, boy, they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And he, like I said, I mean, he helped me out one time uh, when he asked me, who was the toughest pitcher in the National League for you to hit? And I said, Juan Marshall. And he said, well, what makes him so tough? I mean, Ted was starting to get mad at Juan. He'd never met him. <laughs> and so he says, how, do you, how, how, how does he get shot? And I said, any way he wants to. And then T- Ted's response was, why do you let him? I said, What do you mean? Well, he says, What does he throw? I said, He throws a fastball, curveball, slider, and then change up. And he says, Take two of those pitches away for me. Either look fastball, slider, something's coming to play hard, or something that's coming soft, change up, or a curveball. Change the odds. You've just improved yourself 50%. And if you get the pitch, hit it, hit it hard somewhere. Well, you know what's what kind of funny about that is. It started working. I mean, he says, you're an out man anyway, so try to put the odds a little bit more in your favor. <laughs> so I tried that, and sure enough, I, I started getting some hits off of Juan show. But those are the kind of things that, uh, that-, that Ted did. I mean, you'd have to be around him to, to understand how domineering he is. If you put Ted in, the op- in-, in, an, uh, in a room with, say, the top 75 executives in-, in, the- in the country, within a half an hour, he would dominate the room. And that was just the way that
3: he was. Red, you made the all-star team in
8: 1973.
3: The NL team that you played on, Joe Morgan, Hank Aaron, Johnny Bench, Willie Mays, Willie Stargell, what was that clubhouse like?
8: Well, Well, first of all, you had future Hall of Famers all over the place. Uh, in there and and their goal was we have to do they were for the national league they wanted to win and uh that's that's just the way that they played they played that hard but they're all good guys i still see uh, johnny bench every now and then i call mays every year during christmas and wish him a happy new year and, and a merry christmas uh some of the guys that uh that uh, i played uh, against for so many years they're not around anymore and i i miss them but uh they were they were regular guys that had more talent than uh, than you can ever imagine in that one room. I mean, good golly, who would want to pitch to a lineup like that? <laughs> that uh, they had so much power up and down the lineup.
1: You know, Ron, uh, I have to ask you about this because you're, there just are not many people who could talk about these players that Gary has brought up. You you were you were 19 when you broke into the big leagues, 19 years old.
8: I, I think I just turned 20.
1: Okay. Uh less than 2 weeks into your big league career, you faced the Cardinals and you faced Stan Musial. Now, it wasn't Stan in his prime. This isn't this but it's still Stan the man. This is still we're talking about Ted, this is still one of the greatest hitters of all time. Can you remember what it was like 2 weeks into your major league career and you're facing a guy that I have to imagine you had seen and heard of uh for your whole life and now you're right there you're sharing a field with him at Dodger Stadium. I, I just would I would love to know what that was like, if you can remember all the way back to uh, two weeks in your big league career in 1958.
8: I'll, I'll tell you, 1959. We were in St. Louis, and Stan was struggling. He was not. He was not not doing well. He was not Stan Musial. And uh, we went to Sportsman Park in St. Louis. When I, I went early because I heard that he was going to take extra batting practice, so I want to go out there and watch him. So he got in the cage and he hit a few balls. And he – you know, hit a flazy fly ball, hit a ground ball here. I mean, he wasn't—he was off a little bit, and he turned around and he looked at me and says, "Ron, what am I doing wrong?" And I—I I kind of started to laugh. Musial is going to ask me what he's doing <laughs> wrong. You know, I said, "Stan, the only thing I can think of is it's not eight o'clock yet. It wasn't game time." And that night, he hit a pair of doubles and drove in three runs. But I got a kick out of that, and then that same series I talked to him and he says Ron, people come out to the ballpark to watch me hit home runs but he says for the next two weeks I'm going to concentrate on hitting the ball up the middle and the other way until I get my timing down once again and so I followed him for the next two weeks Stan hit only one home run uh, but he was batting 435. He told me when we took batting practice that day I think I could hit 400, but people come out to the ballpark to watch me try to hit home runs. But in that two-week period, Stan hit 435 because I kept track of that, and I've never I've never forgotten that. And he got his timing back because in the next week or two after that, he hit a half a dozen home runs, and he had his timing back and was was going at it again. The one thing that Ted said, or not Ted, but Stan said was. You, to pull the ball constantly, your timing has to be too perfect. And you have to be able to hit the ball up the middle the other way occasionally just to keep your timing right. And the more I thought about that, it made a lot of sense. Today we see these guys that are up there hitting, and they're, they pull everything, pull everything. Well, their timing has to be too perfect. And the guys that are dead pull hitters, they, they're not going to hit for very much of a high average. The only guy that I can think of, that was a pull hitter that hit for a high average. Was Ted Williams? I mean, Ted said you can take the whole ball club and put them over there. I'll still do it. <laughs> <laughs> and and
4: and,
8: and that's that was Ted. That, that's that's the that was his mindset. In fact, he had one game in, in in Fenway Park where he decided just to prove the point. He had two or three doubles off the Green Monster, and said, "See, I can go the other way if I want to." But he says they, people don't come out to watch me hit singles or hit the ball the other way. So that was it. He pulled the ball, and he, like I said, you can put the whole the entire field, uh, the, the entire lineup, and the old time dug up. You put everybody in the outfield. I don't care. I'll still hit
2: it. we got to see obviously Lou Pinella as a manager here for a long time in Seattle. But can you tell us about Lou Pinella the player?
8: Well, Lou it was. Pretty much the same kind of player as he was a manager. He's very fiery, was explosive. Uh, Lou was not an easy out. Now, you look at Lou's numbers, and I mean, he's right there in the middle of the pack, but what you don't see is how many games he won, or how many times he moved runners from first to third, or drove a run in. He was hit the ball up the middle, hit the ball the other way quite a bit, did not have the kind of power that you expect to see it in a guy in the Yankee lineup. But Lou was the kind of guy that you had to be really careful with him because he could beat you. I mean, you can make him look bad, and then all of a sudden you get in the crucial part of the ballgame, bam, that's when he got his hits. It's not how many hits you get. It's when you get them that counts. So Lou was a heck of a player. But I loved Lou as an announcer. Or as, as, as an announcer, I loved it. And the thing is that i got a kick out of Lou is that there would be times where – We'd be doing the game and one of the clubhouse guys would come up and tap me on the shoulder. And I'd turn my microphone off and they said, Ron, Lou needs a ride home. <laughs> we live close together. We lived close together over in the Bellevue area and Anita, his wife had enough. She took the car and went home and Lou was on his own <laughs> so I had I had to bring I had to bring Lou home and, and he would he would tell me things about the game and what went on that there's no way I could put that on the air, but I, I just – I loved I love those times, especially when the when the Mariner did not play well because he kept banging on my dashboard, and I thought he was going to break the dashboard <laughs> a few times. And he had a couple of sayings in the, in, that I really got a kick out of. Do you see what I see? You know, he says, or, am I right or am I right? That's right? And finally one time he got both of those in the same sentence. He says, do you see what I see? Am I right or am I right? And then he to. You know, proceed to go. The one thing Lou would do with me all the time is I, I would get to the ballpark at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and Lou would be sitting there at his desk and figuring out the lineup. And he turns around, and he'd throw the pencil down on the desk. He says, now, how do they expect me to win with a team like this? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, let me ask you this. Would you rather have their first baseman or our first baseman? Would you rather have our second baseman or their second base? And he went around the entire field, and I had to be honest with him. A lot of times, yeah, I'd rather have five of their team's players versus the five on, on the Mariners. Or sometimes it was even six <laughs> when we played the real good ball clubs. And, and he says, "Well, see what I mean." He says, "If they could get me a left-handed, or a, a, a left fielder, and a left-handed starting pitcher, I can take this team to the World Series." And he was—he he meant that. But at that particular time, the Mariners had a budget and they had to stay within it. And of course, Lou was accustomed to being around the Yankees where they turned around and says, OK, it would cost a million or two million or we got to get rid of this player. The Yankees went ahead and did it because they had all the money in the world. But the Mariners didn't have that kind of money and they couldn't make those kind of trades and they couldn't ruin their minor league system. Uh, and so the Mariners couldn't couldn't make the moves Lou would like to have them make. So. After a game on a Sunday or something, he would. I'd go in the clubhouse to wait for the crowd to kind of leave the ballpark, and he says, "What are you doing for dinner?" I said, "Nothing." He said, "Come on, let's go." So, he would invite a couple of two or three of the coaches to go along with us, and we went somewhere in Seattle, and he'd, we'd sit down there, and we ordered a couple of cocktails before dinner, and then we had some wine, and then maybe a drink afterwards, and came time, time for the bill, he he would turn around and says. We're going to put this on the ball club. If they won't get me a left fielder or a left-handed pitcher, we'll make them spend some money here at the fake So that was
7: what—that
8: was one of the things that he did. And then, then laughed like mad. He thought that was funny. Probably drove the front office a little crazy, but that's what he did.
1: Well, folks can uh, read about all these uh, declassified stories at this point. Uh, in uh, your new book, Barely <laughs> at Bat, My 50 Years in Baseball from the Batter's Box to the broadcast booth, Ron, this has been a real treat. This is so kind of you to join us. This, we have we have had a ball. Thank you so much. Well,
8: ju- the, well, the, well the book's available at uh, Barnes and Noble or uh, Amazon or iTunes. Uh, that's where you can pick it up. I think you're going to get a few laughs out of it because there are things that that happened over the period of years that uh, uh, with guys like Yogi Berra, for example, mm. uh, we were around the batting cage one day uh, taking extra batting practice, and Yogi was watching, and Tom Seaver walked by and. And he said, uh, Yogi, what time is it? And Yogi said, right now? Tom <laughs> says, no, tell me what time it was 20 minutes ago, and I'll figure it out. <laughs> so, so we just did little, little kind of quips like that that they're all through the book.
1: Ron, this has been a blast. Thank you so much.
8: All right, any time, fellas.
1: There is Ron Fairley, fairly at bat. Well worth the read, as you can tell. That does not need much, much sales work uh, on our part. All right, well, we've got more coming up on the hot stove after this quick break.
0: Back to more of The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app.
1: Add the Safeco Field Suites to your list of places to check out in 2018, whether hosting clients and coworkers or family and friends. You and your guests will enjoy Mariner's Baseball from the comfort of a private suite. This premium seating option includes game tickets, VIP parking, private SkyBridge entry, and a catering credit. You can get more information mariners.com slash premium. Welcome back to the Hot Stove. And, uh, G-Man, yesterday was Truck Day at Safeco Field. And I know you had a chance to uh, to catch up with the truck.
3: <laughs> I grabbed the truck. Yeah. Let's listen to, to me grabbing the truck. The gray clouds continue to hang overhead, and Pacific Northwesterners wade through the puddles and slog through the winter squalls. But today... The first sign of spring. It was moving day for the Seattle Mariners. One giant and fully loaded truck ready to head to Mariners spring training. One thousand five hundred and six miles, two stops, one in Medford, Oregon, one in Bakersfield, California, before arriving Thursday afternoon in Peoria. It's a whole winter uh,
9: process that we started, you know, pretty much back in October, um, but the last couple of weeks have been, you know, we've been going at it pretty good, Monday through Friday, so. Uh, a lot of the labor is done today, and that truck will head out this afternoon and sit anywhere from 35 to 40,000 pounds of, of uh, equipment. It's a 53 foot trailer, and
3: um, we fill it all the way to the end. On the road again. Just can't wait to get on the road again. That's Mariners Clubhouse manager Ryan Stiles. So the question is what do they bring? Everything equipment, train supplies,
9: uh, strength and conditioning. Uh, supplies, uh, uniforms, bags,
5: bats—just
9: all the things uh, that we use uh, during the regular season. Pretty much, we just try to condense them as much as we can into either trunks or bags, and you know, and then we'll get down there and disperse them out for everybody. The initial planning, you know, it starts a week or two right after the end of our season. We're we're ready to go. I mean after the new year, you know, we spend, you know, the the whole month of January, you know, getting everything ready to go and you know, getting it packed up and shrink wrap. Don't worry about nothing at all, well, once it gets there, you know it'll take us a couple hours to unload. Uh, we usually get down there about two, two or three days before everybody else, so we have that time to get everything, you know, inventoried and put out and organized. Um, I understand there are a few players down there right now working out, you know, with, on the minor league side. So we'll get those guys over. We'll get as many guys outfitted as we uh, as we can, and uh, you know, pitchers and catchers and then position guys and. You know, the way we go. Have
3: you ever forgotten to pack anything?
9: I haven't. I haven't forgotten to pack. Uh... God, I, you know what? I haven't. I think I've been pretty good on that.
3: That's impressive. Not yet. Hopefully, I didn't jinx you. 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 <laughs> the massive truck is loaded as the journey begins south. And pitchers and catchers and spring just
4: around the corner. Play ball!
1: A fine work as always. Gary is the master of the montage, and uh, he did meet the truck. And Ryan Stiles, one of the hardest-working men in baseball. There's no doubt about that.
3: I almost got locked in the truck,
1: fortunately I didn't. <laughs> Well, uh, the things uh, the equipment is uh, on its way to Peoria. We'll be going down there shortly. We're going to have a little bit more to talk about when we come back after this timeout.
0: All things Mariners, all off season. The Hot Stove on 710 ESPN Seattle, 710sports.com, and the 710 Seattle Sports app.
1: Single game tickets are now on sale, which means you can lock in your seats to some of the biggest games of the year, including opening night, kids opening day, fireworks nights, big matchups against the Yankees, the Dodgers, And much more. Get ready for Mariners Baseball at Safeco Field and you check out mariners.com for tickets. Just a few minutes left. Here, guys on the hot stove, Aaron Goldsmith, Dan Wilson, and Gary Hill. I I feel like we've covered a lot of ground tonight, guys.
3: I feel good about tonight.
1: Uh, I feel like, (laughs) actually, Gary, as the producer engineer who scripts the show, I feel like you should have booked Ron for both both
3: of us. (laughs) I feel like that, too. And then added another hour to the show.
1: (laughs) The... uh, yeah, the bonus content. And Dan, uh we don't look we don't normally get you for two hours like this, man. This is this well, has been a treat. Look, look, working with you two professionals <laughs>
2: for two hours is, is it's like going to school. It really is. I appreciate
1: all that you guys do. And it's always a pleasure being here. You know that it is. Now will you yeah. have a similar story that Red had of uh, Dave taking the segment all to himself the whole time, of me and Gary just hogging the mic and holding down the mute button over there on your <laughs> on your control pad. <laughs> no, but I will tell you a story about Dave Nehouse. Please. It's a good one.
2: As I would assume. And Gary might have already, You guys you guys might have heard this already. But you know the pick the click segment for sure. I picked someone that wasn't in the lineup. Oh yes. Please. <laughs> Please. We have we have 2 yes. minutes. <laughs> I picked someone that wasn't in the in the lineup. <laughs> <laughs> and we went to commercial break. I made a good case for it, too. But we went to commercial break, and, and, and kind, of, kind of like how, how Red explained, he took his headphones off, and Dave kind of turns around and looks at me and says, I hope he gets a good pinch hit to win the ball game because <laughs> he had not in the lineup, pal.
1: <laughs> now, I was under the impression that he actually said that on the air. But no. But you said he, he said it off the air. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's, <laughs> that's more graceful than I thought it was. But the story was better if he said it on the air.
2: Yes. Yeah. It, was, it was beautiful. <laughs> it was a great moment. So.
3: That's why this year we'll be slipping you fake lineups Yeah. <laughs> to try and get you to do that Or again. just tell them there's been a lineup. Game, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah. Uh, uh, you know, guys, on a, on a serious note, th- we've we've learned some things. Uh, Anthony Suzuki is the Mariners' new uh, replay coordinator. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did not know that. Chris Prieto, of course, had that job and is now the Mariners' first base coach. And uh, it sounds like you know, we've heard Jerry talk about the Mariners probably going with a six-man rotation for a period of time over the course of the season. And Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News telling us that the Rangers might do that, like for the bulk of the year, which was news to me.
3: Yeah, Bush and Miner as well as rotation guys. It's very interesting. Uh, Dan, will we be seeing you in spring training?
2: Yes, I'll be down there. Looking forward to it. I, I'm actually very optimistic about this club. I, I love the the combination of, of the speed at the top, the the power in the middle, and and uh, you got some guys on the back end of the lineup that can really swing the bat too. So I'm looking forward to. Seeing this team get out of camp and
1: get off to a great start. Well, big thanks to all who made this one possible Ron Fairley, Chris Prieto, Mariners first base coach Evan Grant of the Dallas Morning News, Hall of Famer Dan the Man Wilson, Gary Hill putting this together. You're off to a roaring start, team, man. <laughs> and of course, Curtis Rogers. We'll be talking to you uh, next week. Thanks for tuning in to the Hot Stove Show.